You remember the whole um, the world's going to end in 2012 thing? <laughs> when the like Mayan calendar and some stuff kind of converged and like it was like December 2012 and everybody was building up to it that it was going to be the end of the world. Or maybe a little bit before that, Y2K, right? And all the computers were like going to stop working when January 1st, year 2000 happened and planes would be falling out of the sky. We were talking about this with some people the other night of like, Watching Australia's New Year happen before ours was like a little bit of a, okay, we're, we're all right. <laughs> a couple decades before that, a famous book came out that gripped the, the evangelical Christian world that was called 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1988, which was a bestseller until 1989 <laughs> when... <laughs> when uh, it was no longer on the bestseller list. The Jehovah's Witness movement started out of a, a belief that the world would end and Christ would return in 1914. And imagine the excitement of like, okay, 1914 is this big year, and then a world war erupts, right? Like imagine the fervor around that. Every generation of humanity has predicted and has, has looked at the events that have gone on in their history and have kind of fallen into the hype of, all right, this is the end. In one way or another. You read like Christians in the, the first couple centuries of the church and they're believing, like Jesus is coming back soon. Look at what's going on. You look at what happened in the medieval ages and like with the, the crusades, as horrific as they were, and like this was like the cosmic battle of the end. You look at what happened in the Reformation in the 1500s and 1600s as, as you know, Christendom split and there was beliefs of like the Pope's the Antichrist and all this stuff. Like this was the end. And it has continued to hype in every generation of Christians since the writings of the New Testament. Often, well-meaning, but sometimes misguided followers of Jesus, we fall into that hype as well, right? Whether it's 1988. But especially in the last couple of years, I think I've seen an incredible fervor that has increased in this kind of expectation of the end of the world and end times with man, the, the global effects of the pandemic that we have just been through. And when you look at what's going on and, you know, Russia invading Ukraine and things like that, like, the question probably naturally comes up for people who view that the world is going to end at some point and there's going to be some kind of cataclysmic event to it that, is this it? Is this the end of the world? Especially, man, if you grew up in traditions or in, in families or you just have, like, your own disposition towards, I I'm really interested in all this, like, prophecy stuff and deciphering it, like, that's probably going to be more where you lean. Is China and Russia modern manifestations of nations in the book of Daniel and Revelation? Or that thing that your friend shared on Facebook that is getting a whole bunch of traction that seems to be talking about the end of the world and the mark of the beast and one world government? How many of us maybe in the last couple years have gone down the YouTube rabbit hole a little bit? Though it's tempting, we need to be careful that we don't get too caught up and get 
be too quick to map on the events that we see in the news with what we see in some of the kind of prophetic literature of the Bible. And, and let's be honest, like it's natural instinct to do that. Like, like we see crazy events going on in the world, and if you're someone who, who was brought up to saying like, the end of the world is coming and here are some things to watch out for, like it's so natural for us to just like map those things on immediately, right? The thing is, is sometimes when we're doing that and when we have a preoccupation with that, that can cause in us a distress of like the end is here. And, and listen, I don't see anyone walking around Montague with the sandwich boards around, you know, with the bell saying like the end is here, right? But, but there's, there is a, an increased awareness when big events happen, like the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia, like it's, it's probably natural for us who have kind of a supernatural worldview to ask, do these events have some kind of cosmic significance? Like, is there something in Scripture that's pointing to these events? Here's, here's my main point this morning as we dive into one of the most difficult passages of Scripture that I've ever had to preach on. And we preached Revelation last year, okay? <laughs> is that what we believe about the end affects how we live right now? What we believe about the end affects how we live right now. Haley and I have binged a, a documentary series on Netflix that came out just this past week about a fundamentalist Latter-day Saints group, like fundamentalist Mormons in Utah, uh, Arizona, they moved, to, they moved all over the place. But part of the grip of what kept people in this community was their very core belief that the end is coming soon and the, the figurehead at the top of it, the prophet, is the guy who holds the keys to whether you're in the fiery judgment that comes or whether you're part of the people that are going to make it. And though it would be easy for someone to just kind of walk out of the community and start a new life, the grip of that belief is what kept people in bondage in that community for decades through the abuse that took place. What we believe about the end affects how we live right now. Think about it like this. If we have a belief that, oh, creation's just going to get scrapped and we're going to be, you know, fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. And, and like everything's just going to get burned up. What motivation do we have of like, I care about environmental issues and like stewardship of creation? What we believe about the end affects how we live. We're picking up in this series in 2 Thessalonians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica in Greece. And this was a church that he cared about. He, as like a fatherly figure, was, was concerned about what was going on for them. And so he wrote a first letter to them to help kind of sort out some issues. And within probably a year, year and a half, he wrote this second letter to address things again. This second letter that we're looking at. And just kind of, yeah, for our frame of reference, Thessalonica up in northern Greece in an area that was actually called Macedonia, slightly different than uh, northern Macedonia in modern geographic terms. In relation to Jerusalem down there, you've got Turkey, you've got the boot, that's Italy over there. 
But last week we talked about Paul writing to this church that was experiencing persecution. Right? It was hard for them to live out their faith in Thessalonica because the traditional Jewish community w- hated them for their message that they thought was, was uh, an abomination to Judaism. And the Greeks, the, the ones devoted to, uh, to the Roman Empire and to Caesar, hated them because they were proclaiming a king that was different than Caesar. And so they were experiencing the pinch on both sides, and Paul was writing to them, offering them hope that, listen, you're facing severe injustice and persecution right now, but God's going to persevere you, and ultimately Jesus is going to return, and ultimate justice will be dished out. Both the, the punishment of the wicked, but also the, the vindication of the innocent, and the raising up of those who are oppressed. This week in chapter 2 of Thessalonians, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians who were freaking out about the day of the Lord because they thought it was already happening. Kind of the issue that he is addressing in this part is that the Thessalonians were freaking out that the day of the Lord, the whole end, Jesus' return, all of that was already happening, and maybe they were missing out on it. Now, you can see in, in uh, Paul's writing as he writes to them, and, and as Marlon read earlier, like, Paul realizes this. He, he figured this out from distance away, that this church in Thessalonica were having significant issues and freaking out that this time had come. Reading through just the couple, first couple verses, says this, Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by teaching allegedly from us. So here's the issue, is there was someone, whether it was from the disgruntled Jewish community, or someone who was trying to disprove Paul, who didn't like him, who was teaching or sending letters to the Thessalonians saying, hey, Paul said this, the day of the Lord's happening, right? And maybe you're missing out on it or something. And so all of a sudden they're absorbing this teaching that might have been from Paul, they thought, but it was throwing the community into chaos. Paul says, whether by a prophecy or word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has come. Now, here's, I think, the first thing we need to glean from this passage is to be careful who we listen to, especially when it comes to, like, end-of-the-world stuff. Because everyone and their dog can post a video on YouTube. And... Listen, if, if you're watching a video and it's someone sitting in their car, like, for some reason, it's like people sitting in their car talking about this is like the end of the world stuff. Like, people like to take videos in their car. Like, listen to it with a grain of salt. What, what frustrates me is how quick we are to latch on to someone that we don't know who, don't care, who doesn't care about our spiritual well-being, who has no background in, in good biblical scholarship, but they've got a YouTube channel. And so we're letting that shape our perspective of the end of the world. The, the ratio of like good, qualified biblical scholars who are making a fuss about end-time stuff versus people on YouTube is incredibly disproportionate. And 
we'll, we'll, we'll get to stuff as we carry on. But part of the reason why I think a lot of us get unsettled about end-of-the-world stuff is because a lot of what we're learning from and the teaching that we're receiving is junk. And so we're getting unsettled. Like, Paul's addressing them here, like, when it comes to teaching about the day of the Lord, the end, the fact that you're unsettled about it and that it's like you're up in arms about it means that it's probably not good teaching. In fact, he just said in, in the chapter before, the day of the Lord and Christ's return should be your hope. It should be what you find like encouragement and rejoicing in. And so if it's causing you to like be completely uneasy, if it's bringing more anxiety than it is hope, then it's probably not good teaching on what's coming. He continues in verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets up in himself in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, the point of what Paul is saying here and, man, like I said, this was a tough week for me in, in studying this stuff, the number of commentaries that I've been working through with this. Each of them was reminding the reader that the point that Paul is making is that right now is not the end. The point he's making is don't freak out that you've missed the day of the Lord. His point is there's some stuff that's going to happen before that point. Paul's main point here isn't to give us a sequence or a timeline for us to map out. That's a byproduct of what's happening, but his main point is the time's not here yet. Stop freaking out because the day of the Lord is not yet here. There are a few things that are going to happen. He talks about a rebellion, which, which I think very naturally reads for us that there will be those who, who profess faith in Christ, but when the time comes, there will be uh, many who say, do you know what, this is too hard, I'm not interested in following this guy if things get difficult. Um, I'm no longer following Jesus as my king. A rebellion of those who, who turn away from Christ as things get difficult. He talks about the coming of a man of lawlessness. This is where... Listen, if this is your first week at Cornerstone, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that this, this is, we're getting into this kind of stuff. But the man of lawlessness, uh, some translations uh, translated as the rebellious one, the lawless one. In the language of John, in his writings, in, in his letters, and also uh, in, in the book of Revelation, Many tie this to the figure of what is often called the Antichrist. And I'm sure the minute I say that word, many of you just have this whole thing that you downloaded in your mind of, of assumptions of what that means. But let's just let this text shape our understanding of it first. When Paul's talking about this man of lawlessness, this rebellious one, we read that he is going to set himself up as if he's God opposed to the creator himself. That, that he is almost establishing a kingdom for himself that stands in direct opposition of the kingdom of God. 
And in context of this passage, we almost see these two mirror images of the coming of Christ that brings us hope and the revealing of this Antichrist, which brings deception and delusion. And so it's almost like this this Christ and his coming and the Antichrist and kind of the anti-coming, so to speak. And it talks about him setting himself up in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God, not just against God, but against anything that is worshipped. And, and what Paul is doing here is he is drawing on imagery of prophetic uh, writings in the Old Testament and from historical events that have led up to his time and place. So there is a prophecy in the book of Daniel that talks about someone who comes into the temple and, and desecrates it and sets up idols in the temple. And that was believed to be fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a, a Greek leader who came in, conquered Jerusalem, and set up uh, the worship of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem and desecrated it. In fact, the kind of cleaning house after that, that, that uh, where they kind of cleaned the temple up, is where the, the festival of Hanukkah comes from because apparently the, the light lasted through eight days even though they only had oil for one. That this event happened of the temple being desecrated and someone setting themselves up. It was the leader of the Greeks who came and conquered Jerusalem a couple hundred years before the time of Christ. But then again, 40 years before Jesus' arrival, the, the general Pompey of of the Roman Empire. He comes in and he, he overthrows Jerusalem and he waltzes right into the temple and, and desecrates it by a Gentile presence in the temple and was amazed as he walks in to not see the God who was supposedly there. Like, where is this God in this temple? Why are they worshiping here? What's the big deal? This desecration of the temple that happened a couple hundred years before Jesus' time and then again 40 years before Jesus' time. And even during the time of these writings, the the Roman emperors Caligula and Nero both elevated themselves to the status of gods. To say, I'm the Lord, I am God. And so you worship me not just as emperor, not just as a political leader, but as, as the religious figurehead. The worship of God. And Caligula even started a campaign where he wanted a statue of himself set up in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the reason I'm giving you this historical background is for us to see that Paul is drawing on imagery here to say that this lawless one that's coming comes from a long line of precedent. That there was Antiochus Epiphanes, and there was Pompey, and there was Caligula, and there was Nero, and eventually the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD. Like, throughout the centuries... And like you read your history books, there have been quote-unquote men of lawlessness who have set themselves up and proclaimed themselves to be God that have fulfilled this pattern time after time. And maybe this is why we tend to have in every generation this assumption of, well, the Antichrist is here, the end of the world must be coming. I remember in 2008, like Barack Obama being elected president. And there was this whole thing of like, Obama's the Antichrist. And then Donald Trump gets elected. Donald Trump's the Antichrist. And now Putin's the Antichrist. Like, here's the thing. In Paul's references to to these historical events, I don't think he's saying these people are the Antichrist of the kind of final coming. 
but he's saying there is a pattern and precedent of anti-Christ behavior that in every generation we need to be aware of. And so the question for us in every generation is am I following the way of the Christ or of the Antichrist? Am I in submission to the God who gave his life for me or am I following more in the pattern of the one who exalts himself as God? Even in John's writings about the Antichrist, he says still many Antichrists have already come. He's saying that this is, this is a pattern that we see throughout history. And Paul is saying at one point there will be some kind of man of lawlessness, some antichrist that comes. He's going to set himself up in the temple, but he is doomed to destruction. Ultimately, Jesus is going to return and show his kingdom to be greater, his way to be greater. He as the source of our hope rather than some figure like this. Let's keep reading, verse 5 and onward. Don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, this man of lawlessness, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. You see this, this spirit, this, era, this, this, this way of acting as if we are God already at work in the world. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Now, in my reading on this passage, every commentator is like, this, this is hard stuff. The Greek here is messy. Like, even just trying to make sense of it is difficult. And everywhere I read people had different opinions on what the one who restrains him, what is holding back the man of lawlessness from arriving. And so, here's what I think is an important principle for us in the midst of this. To draw from the text what is there, and also not to speculate on what is not there. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with St. Augustine on this one where he said, and I love this quote, frankly, I confess, I don't know what Paul means. <laughs> when it comes to what or who is restraining the Antichrist, the, this man of lawlessness from coming and the end being here, listen, there's all kinds of views about that. And we can speculate until the cows come home or until Christ returns. But the point is, at some point, there will be a figure on the scene and Christ will show himself greater. The point is God wins. Like, of all of this, the end will come and God's going to win. And whatever this figure is, and however deceptive he is, whatever damage he does, God wins. Let's keep reading. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders to serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. When it talks about he, he, he will be in accordance with the way Satan works, he's going to be a deceiver. He, he's going to tell people, like, this is, this is, like, I'm God. My way is the best way. Like, all of these deceptive, powerful ways of saying, follow me rather than the way of Christ. It will be a deception the way the serpent in the garden 
sought to deceive. In the way that the devil in the wilderness with Jesus tried to twist the words of Scripture, it will be a form of, I want to deceive people into following my way rather than God's way. And what we read here is that those who are deceived are those who refuse to love the truth. Those who, who didn't believe the truth, but believed the lie and delighted in wickedness. And we read that God sends a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. That's kind of hard to hear. What this passage is talking about is that when the day comes, God's going to make it obvious who's on his side. And, and I think sometimes we... We get really worried, and this is part of the unsettledness of like end time stuff, is when this deceiver comes, how do I know I'm not going to be deceived? Right? And I think the hope that Paul is offering us here is we need to be decisive of whether we're pursuing the truth of Jesus or whether we're kind of on the fence. Because I think we are much more likely to be deceived if we're on the fence and not all in with Jesus. Because those who delight in the truth are saved. Those who are pursuing Jesus, I think it'll be abundantly clear of whether I'm in with Jesus or whether I'm not. And we all need to make that choice at one point or another. Am I in with Jesus or am I just going to ride the fence? Am I in with Jesus, or am, I, or am I just going to be out? Like, to actually make the decision. Because when the time comes, I think it's going to be obvious. That if we're with Christ, we'll be able to know. And if we're riding the fence, or we're out, we'll be more susceptible to the deception. Here's, here's how we handle this difficult passage of God sending this powerful delusion. One of the best understandings I've read about the wrath of God is God allowing the natural outcomes of our behavior and our actions to get played out. God allowing our decision to believe the lie and he says, okay, go that way. If you're not going to follow my son, if you're not going to delight in the truth, and you're going to head in another direction, God's saying, all right, I'll let you go that way. We read in Romans about those who have hardened their hearts because of sin, God hands them over to that sin to say, all right, go that way. I'll let you go. And I think this, this should cause pause for us to wonder of, in? Am I pursuing Christ? Or am I pursuing something else? I think one of the, the best analogies I've heard of this deception, I, th I think actually comes from, from Daryl, where one time we were talking and he said, the way to know the real, the way to be able to identify a counterfeit is to know the real thing really well. When it comes to fake money, right? You identify the counterfeit by 
by knowing what a real $100 bill is really like. I think, think the call to those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus is to get to know the real thing really well. Paul continues, But we want always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and th- through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's excited because the Thessalonians, like they're on board with Jesus. He said, I've already seen fruit in you in the last chapter, remember? He's praising God because it's obvious that God's at work among them and in their community. He's praising God that it's obvious that they've kind of picked the side, so to speak. But then he says, so then, brothers and sisters, Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. This is the first time he gives, like, clear, this is what I need you to do. Hold fast and stand firm. Stand firm, I, I, I believe, to be more of like the, in the midst of like persecution mounting, getting pressed on both sides, whether it's by the, the Jews who are angry with you or the Greeks who are angry with you, stand firm to Jesus even when it's hard. Stay close to him. Keep familiarizing yourself with the real thing. That Jesus is, is with you in the midst of the difficulty. Stand firm in him. Keep pursuing Jesus even when it's hard. And the hold fast to the teachings is, listen, there's going to be other people who are going to try to lead you astray. who are going to try to teach you to go in, in different directions. who are going to tell you that the day of the Lord's already here and you missed it, so you might as well give up on Jesus and Paul and all of that stuff. Hold fast to the teachings of the apostles and what they wrote to you. And I think for us too, like to hold fast to the teachings of of Jesus and his disciples that have been passed down to us through the generations. That, listen, as we study this letter that was written 2,000 years ago, we're doing it so that we might hold fast to the truth that was passed down by God revealing himself to us in Christ. Keep trusting Jesus. Stand firm. Keep pursuing Jesus. Hold fast. Keep trusting Jesus. So that whatever the future holds, whether it's in five years' time or 500 years' time or whatever, that in our standing firm and holding fast, we'd be so familiarized with, with Christ and his life and what he invites us into that whatever deception comes, whether it's from the true man of lawlessness or just the, the distraction of the world around us, we would find our hope and comfort in Jesus. The last thing I'll say. What our world needs right now from the church is not a bunch of Christians up in arms about the end times. What the world needs from the church are people who are committed to walking closely to Jesus, who are living out and offering the hope that Jesus is in the midst of a world that is confusing and discouraging and all of the chaos of what's going on. We have a hope to offer through the midst of it. Not a map of of the end. Cool? Let's pray.
Jesus, you're our hope. And in walking closely with you, we won't lose our way. That you hold us close as we we live our life um, carrying your yoke, as you say in Matthew. That your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That you, you give us rest for our souls and you walk with us through whatever's ahead. And God, though there's difficulty in parts of Scripture that we're going to wrestle through and struggle with and try to make sense of what's going on in the world around us, God, my prayer is that you would help us day by day to live as those faithful to Christ. Man, by your grace, would you in your mercy keep us close to you? Help us to abide in the vine, as Jesus says. That the world would see your grace and actually the hope and life that can be found in you, even in the present even in the midst of who knows what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Who knows what's going on with the, the, the calendar and the, the time of the end. Our hope's still in you. May it remain there. It's in your name we pray. Amen.